Thank you for tuning in to Lexington Road Ministries podcast. We're so thankful that you chose to stop by. We hope you enjoy today's message. And tonight we're going to start reading there in Exodus chapter 30. We're going to be talking about the bronze laver. We're going to be talking about the building itself. We'll talk about the menorah, the golden candlestick, and the table of showbread if we get enough time to do that. Exodus 30, uh, starting there at uh, verse 17. I'm going to read that, and then I've got my readers that are going to come with me tonight because I've got lots and lots of scripture. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the other temples and especially the one that they are looking into now and going to build very quickly, very soon. And I'm real excited about that. I know that you all are because we are getting ready to see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can't hardly wait. I'm going to be like a kid at Christmas. Worse than that, worse than that. Exodus 30, 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die, and it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and to his descendants throughout their generations. When we talk about the labor, it's typified of washing and regeneration, sanctification. Some people will even say baptism, and baptism is a form of sanctification. And there's an age-old argument about if is sanctification a one-time uh period in our life or a one-time act of God like salvation, uh, sanctification, and baptism of the Holy Ghost. Well, I'm going to tell you that if you look at this laver, you will get a picture that this they washed every day and sometimes more than one time. And trust me, if they lived like I do, I have to wash more than one time a day. I have to pray all the time. And so uh, we're going to talk about regeneration. Titus 3 and 5, if you will, uh, Kathy. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first piece of furniture that we saw in the tabernacle was the bronze altar. And that was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, his sacrifice. And the second is the brass or the bronze laver. The priest had to wash their hands and feet before entering the holy place. Uh, if, they re if they did not do that, if something were to happen that they forgot to do that, trust me, they would never forget it again because they'd be dead. The priest had to wash their hands and feet before going into the holy place. And after he had sacrificed at that brazen altar, can you imagine that if he slit the, the throat of that lamb, which that would be what he'd have to do before he put it on the altar, then his clothes, his hands, his feet would be covered in blood. And so... Um, he, was, he would have to um, wash before he would go into the holy place. He would also take his finger in the blood and dip it on the horns of the altar. And from there, he would take the blood into the holy place. 
So you can also say that this tabernacle, the floor was made of dirt. There was no floor in it whatsoever. So going about his duties all day before he went into worship, he had to be cleansed if he were to face a holy God. If he didn't do this, God would strike him down. So our problem is that, you know, there's something wrong with the Pentecostal church or the church of God because we think that if we embrace eternal security that we're Baptist. Can I tell you that it's a whole lot harder to backslide than we make it out because God is so merciful to us and he has made a way so that we wouldn't have to backslide. In fact, that's what the labor is for is so that we can be cleansed over and over and over again. Our problem is, is that we don't believe that God will forgive us over and over and over again. Somehow or another, we get to the place like Adam and Eve, we sinned and we hide from God because we haven't gone to the laver to wash. And so what happens when you face a holy God and you are in your sin? The natural thing to do is to hide from him. But God made provision so that when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, which is Christ Jesus. And he expects you to wash yourself, to be cleansed. God provided for the priest, knowing that when you live in this world, you're going to get dirty. He made provision for us. He knew that there would be times in your life that you were going to sin. And so he has made provision for that. And the best thing that you can do for yourself is quit beating yourself up about it. Just go to the labor and wash and trust that the grace of God has covered your sins and then boldly enter, amen, can I get an amen, into the presence of God. First uh, John 1 and 7 says, Go ahead, ladies. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our, us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, there are some pious Christians that will go around with a halo on their head all the time and pretend to you that they never sin. I'm not even going to say mistake or a problem. I'm going to say sin because that's what the Bible calls it. Sin will kill you. It will separate you from God. But if you're not living a life committed to sinning, but you do sin from time to time, how many of you have ever lost your temper? And you've said things that were totally wrong. You should, and you knew you were ashamed of yourself for doing it. And it was a sin unto you. Uh, you hurt somebody's feelings. How many of you have ever lied since you've been a Christian? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one because I've done that. God forgive me. I have done it. How many of you looked at somebody and said, I love that outfit you got on. You hate it. It looks terrible. They need to go home and change. Those are just little white lies, but I'll be, just be honest with you and frank. I've lied since I've been a Christian. Something that was going to get me out of trouble, I lied. Did the Holy Spirit prick my heart? Absolutely, yes. And I had to go to the laver. So the hands of the priest were symbolic of his work, his Christian works. And the feet of the priest was his Christian walk, the way that you live. Exodus 38 and 8 says he, he made from brass mirrors from the women. This laver was made from brass mirrors. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. So when the priest 
approached the laver. I want you to get a picture of what he saw. It's very important that he could see himself approach the laver. Even when he dipped his hands in the water and he saw, what did he see looking back at him? Himself. He sees himself. This is what sanctification is, folks, is that it gives you the picture of who you really are. And we might as well quit deluding ourselves and acting like we're all that in a bag of chips because we are not. We are, that's why Jesus had to die. Sin was a terrible thing. And for us to go around acting as if we have finally arrived, we have not arrived yet. I have not arrived. In fact, until I feel the click of the pearly gates on my heels, that's when I know that I have arrived. Amen? But so the altar was a picture of God's work, and so the labor is a picture of not only God's work in me, but what I have to do with myself as well. I get a picture of who I am and how wicked I can be. I dare not approach God without recognizing my own sin. In fact, when I get a picture of who I truly am and what I'm capable of, then I come humbly before him and ask that he cleanse me of my sins. Then that's when he can work in me. But he hates a proud look and a haughty spirit. He hates Christian people who go around acting like they don't need the blood to cover them. And so they come to that labor. They see themselves as they approach. Now I'm going to give you just a little bit of history of these mirrors and, and what was happening there. In the book of Enoch, and I know you don't have that tonight. Some of you may not have the book of Enoch at home. But there is a history about these mirrors in the book of Enoch, chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. And I'm just going to read you what Enoch says about where what happened. And we talked about this not too many weeks ago about the angels cohabiting with the daughters of men and having children with them. And they produced giants or hybrid human beings. They did something to the DNA line of the human being and it was so terrible that God had to wipe man off the face of the earth and the only righteous seed or the only true seed that, was a, that the Messiah could come through was Noah. It says he was perfect in all his generations. He was perfect in the genealogy. His genealogy came from Adam all the way to Enoch and then all the way to Noah. And there weren't, were no hybrid beings, no fallen angels in his line. So he was the savior of the world. God could replenish the earth with Noah. And so... Here it is in Enoch 8. Moreover, Azazel, and this is the name of an angel, taught men to make swords. Listen what this fallen angel taught men to do. To make swords, knives, shields, breastplates, the fabrication of mirrors, and the workmanship of bracelets and ornaments, the use of paint, the beautifying of the eyebrows, the use of stones of every valuable and select kind and all sorts of dyes so that the world became altered. Impiety increased, fornication multiplied, and they transgressed and corrupted all their ways. Well, what was, what was going on here? He taught them what were the things that they made. Swords, knives, shields, breastplates. What's that? War. And then he changed women. 
in that he uh, fabricated mirrors so that they could look at themselves and the workmanship of bracelets with all these stones and ornaments, the paint on her face, the beautifying of the eyebrows, the use of the stones, these were the jewels. And so from that, that it says that impiety increased fornication, multiplied and they transgressed and corrupted all their ways. Well, what was brought in as corruption, the fallen ones introduced women and men to mirrors and cosmetics, and yes, I said men as well. So what, what does makeup do? It hides our true selves from the world. Uh, we think we actually look better when we put on all that makeup. And I'm sitting here with makeup on tonight. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm, I'm this beautiful all the time. <laughs> but I know some people that wouldn't dare go out in public without makeup on because they want to impress somebody or act as if they look different. Trust me, I look a whole lot different when I ain't got this stuff on. The mirror is an object that will not lie. When you look at your reflection, it tells you who you truly are. When you take the cosmetics off, it shows you who you truly are. And this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to, he wants for one thing to see you, you to see yourself and how depraved we can be. And he wants us to see that he has made provision to wash us clean from that wickedness. And so the thing that brought in corruption is now a vessel of cleansing with the laver. The altar was for sins, cleansing. It shows who Christ was and the laver shows us who man is. It shows us who we are. Ephesians 5, 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Exodus 30, 20. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Now the priesthood, uh, when we talk about the priesthood, it's speaking about us because in 1 Peter 2 and 5, read that for us. You also as living stones are built, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we are to be blessed when we go into the holy place, then we need to be clean. If not, we cannot go any further than the outer court. In fact, uh, in Herod's temple, there was an outer court, and that's where the Gentiles had to stay and the women had to stay. Only the men or the, could go into the inner part and only the high priest into the holy place and only the, I mean, sorry, priest could go in to the uh, holy place and the high priest could go into the holy of holies one time a year. So, but now, as First Peter says, that he has made us a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So this is us that we're talking about here. And if we are going to go in, if we're not going to remain in this outer court, then if we want to go further with God, then we must be cleansed. There are many of us or people in the church, unfortunately, who want to remain in the outer court. They are saved. Don't get me wrong. I believe that they're saved because there is an altar there and their sins have been put upon the altar. But they never have an intimate communion with their Lord. They never go any further than the labor. They do not wash themselves. In fact, that lifestyle to them seems 
weird or unnecessary that God is asking too much of us. And so to go into that inner court, and when I talk about going into that inner court, how many of you know the difference besides coming to church and singing a few songs? How many of you know the difference between a song leader and a worship leader? How many of you know the difference between singing a song and worshiping, praise and worship? Well, this is what happens is that we as believers, as a kingdom of priests, goes into the holy place. There is a place far beyond the outer court. And some people, unfortunately, will never find that place because they neglect this cleansing and they are very uncomfortable in that inner place. I, I find it so amazing that people would not want to go there because it's so beautiful inside. This is, that's what takes place in the holy place is communion with our Lord. Okay, Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The word did not profit them. Did you get that? Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having in our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and with our bodies being washed with pure water. This gives you the, the, the picture of the priest sprinkling the blood on the altar and then washing, and he is saying, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is our promise that we can go into a deeper place with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to look at the building itself. Uh, God uses three things. In fact, he uses much more than three things because there's silver, gold, all kinds of things in there. But these three things that were alive at one time to build the tabernacle, wood, animals, and cords or rope. In other words, something living had to die in order that man would have fellowship with God. And so let's talk about these walls. Exodus 26, 15 through 18. And for the tabernacle, you should make the boards of Acadia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tensions shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. This speaks about sinners being saved by grace. When you look at boards or wood in the tabernacle, it is always speaking of humanity. That's us. And not only are we wood or we are just the, the debased things of the earth, uh, we are covered in gold, which is what God does with us once we receive his salvation. We are sinners saved by grace is what we are. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Right there in our film, you'll see tonight those boards were covered over with gold and um, 
In fact, 1 Peter 2 and 5 says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Exodus 35, 30 and 31. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship. Bezalel was the man who was a craftsman, and God called him to make these boards and to overlay them with gold. In fact, Bezalel means the shadow of God. Anytime you have El at the end of a name, that's God's name, El. Bethel is Beth being the house of God. And Bezalel, meaning the shadow of God. He is a type of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us as the church. He builds us into the house of God. That's what we are. Boards covered in gold, like we're covered by God, and then a foundation rested on silver sockets, five tons of silver. Now, I learned today that in their day, actually, silver was more expensive than the gold was. It was considered more precious. And so the foundation of silver is a picture of Jesus Christ. Exodus 30, 15 through 16. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Everyone had to give the same amount, rich and poor. And I find that quite interesting. Because he tells us now we give a tithe, which is fair, the rich make more money than you or I do, so their tithe would be 10%. Ours is 10%. It's the same amount of money. We're, we're given the same kind of uh, instructions that they give 10%. My little meager check, I give 10%. And so everyone has to give the same, rich or poor. That way, no one can boast and no one can give an excuse. God says all of us are to build the house. All of us are to invest in the house. All ground is level at the cross. There are no big eyes and little U's. It doesn't matter if the mayor comes here. And I, I like Brother Jim. I think he's a great guy. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, we always used to joke because mayors never would come to the church of God. Here we are living in the 21st century and we had the mayor that comes to the house of God. The fact of the matter is, is that no one is bigger or better than the other at the house of God. All ground is level. So Jesus paid it all. Ephesians 2.10, somebody said Jesus paid it all, so I don't have to give anything, right? That's right, amen. <laughs> That's right. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Before the boards were laid, the foundation had to be laid. And so 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 17. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest 
for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, then he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them, him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Is there any doubt that this building is a picture of the church? We are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then bars, if, if we'll get a picture of that in just a moment, bars ran, well, you can't see it right now because it's got the curtain over top of it. But bars would run through the side of that tabernacle with those boards. Uh, Keeping them together, Ephesians 2.21 says, In whom the whole building uh, being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 1 John 1 and 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. This is a picture of not only us, but a picture of the church. What is Christian fellowship? I think sometimes in our modern day church, we think fellowship is having fun. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about Christian fellowship as being fun. Now, I'm not against fun. You all know I love to have a good time. If you don't know that about me, I don't know where you've been, under a rock somewhere, I don't know. But I like to have a lot of fun. But that doesn't necessarily describe Christian fellowship. Fellowship is being with one another almost like a marriage. That's how we are to view one another. Uh, we remain in fellowship with him if we continue in him, 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence <laughs> and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There are instances, now I said it's hard to backslide, but there are instances where you can backslide. How is that possible? She just read that scripture that tells you how. If you do not remain in him, if you do not remain in the vine, you are not saved any longer. You must remain in the house I'm not preaching church religion. I'm not saying you got to come to the house of God in order to be saved. I'm saying that you must be part of the house. You've got to remain part of the building, lively stones. And then it's, it's fellowshipping with one another. Have you ever noticed that when you worship with a church where there are interpersonal problems in the church that you can almost sense it immediately? Ooh. It's, it's because there's no joy there. The fellowship has been disrupted. And there have been a few times when even in our churches that we pastored uh, that there was something terribly wrong because the fellowship had been disrupted. How does that happen? Anyone have any clue how fellowship is disrupted? If you start, in fact, it's called carnality. If you start biting and eating on one another, cannibalizing each other, 
then fellowship is disrupted. And that happens. It happens. In fact, the Word of God tells us that we become carnal when we start eating flesh. That's what carnal is. Chili con carne is flesh. We're eating flesh. And there are a lot of people that like to eat flesh, but not only do they like to eat flesh, living in the flesh, but they also like to eat the flesh of other people. They cannibalize their own people. And so if, if you're going to eat on me, sure, I'm going to break fellowship with you. So, <laughs> so nowhere in the world is fellowship described as having fun. Nothing wrong with fun. In fact, um, I'm not going to read that scripture, but because it's quite lengthy, if you want to write that down, 1 John 1 and all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, talks about church fellowship. In fact, the word of fellowship is called koinia, uh, to describe the fellowship of believers. That's what we are, a sense of oneness and association and community and fellowship. And it's more than just being together, more than us just coming together in here and being together. In fact, you all ought to know everyone's name, and if you don't know everyone's name, you ought to try to get to know everyone. Quit going to the same people that you know, that you know, that you know, because we are a fellowship of believers. And there are some people that cannot do that on their own. You must make the step to do that. How will they know that you love them unless you approach them? This is what happens to our churches is that people don't feel connected and so they're going to go to a place where they are connected. And there are some places that do that connection thing real well. So it's imperative for us as a congregation that we connect with one another. If you never spoke to your wife or your husband, what would happen after a while? See you in court, baby. <laughs> in fact, co-workers can work together all day long and still not have fellowship with each other. They might know each other's name, but they may not have anything in common, don't want to know him, don't want to know nothing about him, just say hi and bye and that's it. That is not fellowship. It's the same picture that we see in marriage. Two are united. We are one temple, one body, one bride, one people. And so these bars are a bond of unity and fellowship. It binds the building together. Ephesians 4, read that for us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That means one church, not a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Catholic church or an Episcopalian church. It means one body, one church. And if you can't fellowship with them or they can't fellowship with you, then there is something wrong with their spirit or with yours. I went up to a guy one time. He was a Baptist minister. And we were a singing group, and, and I said something to him about coming to his church and singing. We'd love to come. And he let me know right Well, first of all, he said, what denomination are you, sister? And I said, we're Church of God. He said, the Pentecostal Church of God? Cleveland Assembly? I said, yes, sir. He said, we won't have anything to do with you. No, thank you, ma'am. 
if he cannot fellowship with me, I don't know whether he's going to find a place up there in heaven because I got news for him. They're going to be a whole lot of Pentecostal churches up there, people up there. And so there is something wrong when you cannot fellowship with other denominations or other churches. And I don't care if they baptize in Jesus' name or if they sprinkle or if they dunk them forward or dunk them back. <laughs> if they... If they have something in common with me, which is what? Jesus, the blood of Jesus and that he is God, then I can fellowship with that. Amen? I ought to get a bigger amen than that. What, what would it be like if brother pastor come in here Sunday morning and we all were up shaking hands and smiling and patting each other on the back? Not the same people. I'm talking about this bunch go over there, that bunch go over here. <laughs> what would I think he might pass out. Okay, let's go on and talk about the four coverings that are on the building. Two outer coverings, two inner coverings. The first covering that you see on that tabernacle was badger skin. The outer covering, it's the first thing that you see. And then the second covering was a ram, then goat's hair, and then linen. The badger skin was tough and durable. It's the first covering that you saw. And I must say that that is some pitiful-looking building with that badger skin on it. That always disturbed me because I thought, Lord, can't you do any better than that? Badger, a badger skin, it's so dark, so ugly, so unattractive. So when you come and you see this building that he once erected and you see this unattractive picture of Yeshua, unattractive picture of Jesus or the church, what's Isaiah 53, 2 say about that? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What in the world does that mean? Because to me, the picture of Jesus is simply beautiful. But the Bible says that there was no beauty on the outside. When we're talking about this tabernacle, it's all on the inside. No beauty outside. It's all on the inside. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was not comely. He was not a good-looking man. He wasn't a GQ model or the world's sexiest man. He would not be put on People magazine as the world's. He would not look like Brad Pitt. He would not, not look like uh, um, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. <laughs> he, he would not look like that. So why would the Bible think that that was necessary to say that about our Lord because his beauty is not here his beauty is here it's inside and that my friend is why the world will not accept him they don't find him attractive and quite frankly they wonder why we do But when you see this badger skin, you think, my goodness, wouldn't God want a better looking sanctuary than that? It's ugly. In fact, it's not like the most beautiful temples in the world. Now, I have been to some temples or some uh, buildings. In fact, we went to Washington, D.C., and we saw the National Church there. I've never seen anything so splendorous, so unbelievable, the craftsmanship, the beauty that went into that building. And I thought, you know, the Lord ought to... He, the Lord ought to have the most beautiful building. It ought to be the most inspiring. But there is something about the ugliness of this building that he says, 
The world will never understand the beauty of Jesus. It's only those of us who go into the holy place that we begin to see how beautiful he really is. And I'm going to tell you, he is beautiful. And the next covering under the badger was the ram's skins dyed red, taken from a ram that was on the altar. Jesus was the substitute for sin. And under the ram was the hair of the goat. And we saw that sacrifice last week when we talked about the scapegoat. The goat hair was a form was a picture of Yeshua. Leviticus 16:20. Read that for us. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and shall release the goat in the wilderness, sin barrier, scapegoat. That actually sin barrier, scapegoat was my, my words. I shouldn't have put that in there. Sorry, ladies. Um, he, in fact, the scapegoat, we talked about that last week where that he would lay hands on one goat and then he would have a lamb that he would slit the throat of the lamb, put the lamb on the altar, and then he would tie the red cord around the goat's neck and lay hands on it, transforming the sins, my sins onto the goat, and the goat was set out into the wilderness. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one says, "For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." And under all that badger skin, ram skins dyed red, goat hair covering, then the covering of fine linen. This covering was only seen from inside. It was the same colors that you saw on the outside of the tent or the tabernacle on the east side. And then when you came into the holy place, you see this. This color again, which the purple, the scarlet, and the blue. Uh, this is a perfect picture of Jesus. And then you see these pictures of angels or cherubim uh, guarding the way in. Only those um, without are the ones that are in the outer court, the sin. They are guarding the, the holy place from people that have sin. It's a picture of the cherubim with the flaming sword guarding the tree of life from those who would do it harm. Genesis 3:24. So he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Lord had to put a cherubim there saying that you cannot come in to partake of the tree of life. Here he puts these cherubim saying to the priest, no further. He's saying, in fact, when he goes into the holy place and he sees this covering over him and the pictures of the cherubim saying, caution, be careful. You're in a holy place. Have you ever been somewhere that you felt the Shekinah glory of God so thick that you trembled with fear. I was in a church service one time and I didn't actually realize what was going on, but there was sin in the camp at that time. We didn't know what was going on. But in there was a revival. It was at Danville, Kentucky, and we had like 80 or 90 people baptized in one night. They sent fire trucks down there about 11 or 12 o'clock at night because they thought somebody was breaking in the building. 
the, the neighbors called the law and said, you need to come down here. There's an awful lot of noise going over on over there at the church, and it's 12 o'clock. What in the world? And the firemen came down, checked it out, and the police came down, checked it out, and the fire firemen said, well, uh, there's not a break-in, but he said, it's a good thing we got the fire trucks here because there's a lot of fire in that building, but it's not the fire that you're accustomed to. But uh, there was, we, we were having these services where God would just come in the place. And can I tell you how to get there? You lose all control. You take your hands off of it. You know that song, Jesus, take the wheel? When we come in here, we ought to say, Jesus, take the wheel. Take control of it, Lord. Because we're in a holy place. And the man that was up in the front of the church and he was talking and the Spirit of God was in the house and I was standing in the congregation sort of out here in the altar area and I felt a presence come behind me. And I'm telling you that I felt on my neck. My hair moved and I got cold chills. And I felt like if I moved one inch that I would either scare that away because the Holy Spirit is so gentle or I would be killed or somebody was going to face judgment that night and I didn't know what was happening but the man that was up front was not living where he should have been and I I wanted to say to him and I did not know that at the time the spirit of discernment came on me and I was praying for him and I said, oh Lord, please don't let him say anything that would be, bring judgment in this house because we had prayed for so long for the Spirit of God to come in in a thick spirit. Have you ever felt that thickness? The, the anointing is heavy. It's a heavy thing and when it comes in, it'll saturate and it will... In fact, it will divide and it will cause you to lose all inhibitions and it will cause you to fall before him and in just pure God, forgive me for my wickedness. And when you would press your way into that holy place and you would see those angels, this is what we must do, church to get to that place is to take our hands off of it and realize that when we come here we're in a holy place if we could see in the spirit what is actually there the angels that he has allowed to minister to us the evil spirits that sit there beside people in our congregation and go home with them or angels that go home with them. I'm telling you, church, that when they would walk into that holy sanctuary, it was a place of awe. It was a place of fear. Not because a place of terror. It was an awesome place where God's presence resided. And those that were without the camp in the outer place will never know the awesomeness of God in his holy place until you wash 
and you enter into that place unafraid but yet in awe of his spirit now church I'm telling you before he comes again there is going to be an awesome revival hit this planet but at the same time the Bible says a great falling away people that you would never think would give up on God will give up on God ministers, churches closing their doors but there's also going to be a group of people that will walk into the holy place and realize where they're at and they will want the presence of God church if we want that we can have it did you hear what I said if we want that we can have it it is available for us to have, but we've got to take our hands off of it and let God do what God does. And I'm going to tell you, God is not a microwave oven. He's not going to sit there while you tap your hand and your feet and say, hurry up, God, I got something to do. I got to watch my show. He is going, he only comes to those who will wait upon him. He's more like a crock pot, a slow cooker. And you've got to give him time to work and to move in your spirit. In fact, sometimes it might take a long time for me to get this worldliness out of me till God can do something within me. When I look at that black badger skin and I think of Jesus, I want to disagree with the world that he was truly beautiful. I don't know what I'm going to see when I get to heaven. But I know one thing. That everything that we've gained here on this world, in this world, we are going to cast at his feet. And he is going to be the most beautiful creature that the world has ever seen. Stand with me. Oh, my God. <laughs> we hunger for your presence. And it is only when your presence comes, Lord, that we're going to see healing and forgiveness and righteousness restored to us. It is only when we take our hands off of everything, Lord, and we give it to you that we consider you king of kings, that you are king and sovereign and that you control it all. It's only at that point, Lord, that we're going to see you move. And I know, God, in these last days that you're going to pour your spirit out on flesh and that our sons and our daughters will prophesy and that our old men will dream dreams and our young men will see visions.
I believe that we will step on scorpions and if we drink any deadly thing that it will not harm us. I believe that we will raise the sick, Lord, and we will raise the dead. I believe all these things are coming to the last day, church, but only those who take their hands off of it. And when we walk into the Holy of Holies and we see your presence there, God, above us, beneath us, beside us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ to the left of us, Christ to the right of us, Christ surrounding us in everything that we do, Lord, and in this house and when we leave this place, God, in this fleshly house that we have, when you dominate it, Father, when you live in this holy of holies, when you live in this holy place, this temple, Oh, God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to join me, church, around this altar.